through Daniel chapter 6. first six chapters of Daniel are primarily practical. The last six chapters are primarily prophetic. first half of Daniel talks about the man. The last half of Daniel talks about the message. And so this morning, as we conclude the first section of the book, I trust that you have been impressed with Daniel the man. The more I discover about Daniel, the more I want to be like him. Because in every area of his life, he was a shining example. And I found myself asking the question, what is it about Daniel that makes him stand out? What is it about Daniel that sets him apart from others? And I think I found the answer back in chapter 1 and verse 21. It simply says there, and Daniel continued. And that really sums up Daniel. Daniel continued. Daniel was constant. And that's especially apparent because everything around Daniel changed. He was taken away from his parents when he was still in junior high. He was taken out of Israel into Babylon. When he got settled into Babylon, Babylon changed to Persia. No less than ten kings have come and gone. Almost four generations have come and gone. Everything in Daniel's surroundings have changed except Daniel. Daniel is consistent. And that characteristic is borne out to us also in chapter 6. If you look down at verse 10, the end of that verse says, He was praying and giving thanks before his God as he had been doing previously, or as was his custom. That was consistent. Look at verse 16 at the end. The king says, Your God whom you constantly serve will himself deliver you. You constantly serve. The characteristic, the trait in the life of Daniel that stands out is consistency. And as we go through this sixth chapter, I want to underline the consistency of Daniel. Now, the sixth chapter of Daniel contains probably the most familiar story in all the Bible. Daniel in the lion's den. Some of you have been hearing that since you were a little kid in Sunday school. You probably know the flannel graph figures by heart, and you've probably worn out crayons coloring pictures of Daniel in the lion's den. And so I'm not expecting that there will be high drama today as we go through this chapter. You probably know how it ends. But what I want to do this morning is gain some lessons about consistency from the life of Daniel. And so as we go through this chapter, I would like to point out six areas that Daniel was consistent in. First of all, he was consistent in performance, verses 1 to 3. Notice, it says, It seemed good to Darius to appoint 120 satraps over the kingdom, that they should be in charge of the whole kingdom, and over them three commissioners, of whom Daniel was one, that these satraps might be accountable to them and that the king might not suffer loss. Now, Darius the Mede is the king mentioned here. When we get to the last verse of chapter 6, we're going to find that Cyrus was the Persian king. They had a sort of joint kingdom at this point in time. And you'll remember from chapter 5 that the Medo-Persian Empire has just overthrown the Babylonian Empire, and so it's necessary to have a whole restructuring of the government. And so Darius sets up a, an organizational chart, a flow chart, if you like. He has three commissioners or presidents. Daniel is one of those. They are overseeing 120 
satraps. That word literally means king protectors. And they were apparently assigned to certain areas of the kingdom. And so it's set up with three men at the top, presidents. Daniel's one of those. Under each of those are 40 satraps who answer to them. And the reason this is done is given to us at the end of verse 2. It tells us that Darius had a problem that most leaders have. He couldn't be everywhere, so he had to delegate responsibility, and he couldn't trust a lot of his men. And so he wanted to hold them accountable. He didn't want to lose. And one of the things that the Medo-Persian Empire was known for was collecting taxes. And apparently he feared that many of these satraps would pocket much of the taxes, so he wanted to create some accountability in the structure of the government. Verse 3, Then this Daniel began distinguishing himself among the commissioners and satraps because he possessed an extraordinary spirit, and the king planned to appoint him over the entire kingdom. It didn't take long for Daniel to start distinguishing himself above the others. In fact, we're told here that the king had gotten to the point where he was already ready to scrap the organizational chart and just put Daniel at the top. And what was Daniel's secret? We're told in verse 3 that he possessed an extraordinary spirit. And if we go back to chapter 1 and verse 17, we find that that was given to him by God. But that alone doesn't account for what we read in this verse. Because I think it's obvious here that Daniel was also consistent in his performance. I mean, think about it. Under Nebuchadnezzar, chapter 2, verse 48 tells us Daniel was placed over the whole province of Babylon. Under Belshazzar, chapter 5, verse 29 tells us he was made the third ruler in the kingdom. And now under Darius, he's one of three presidents, and he's about to become top dog. Now that is especially impressive because at this point in time, Daniel is about 81 years old. He could have easily said, I'm too old to be starting over in a new administration. But that's not Daniel, because Daniel was consistent in performance. And Daniel saw an opportunity to influence this new kingdom for God, and that's exactly what he did. Maybe there's somebody sitting here this morning, and you've been serving God for a number of years. And you've got an attitude that says, I've put in my time, let somebody else do it. I've served 10, 20, 30, 40 years. Well, Daniel served 70 years, and he's still going strong. He was consistent as a teenager, consistent as an adult, consistent as a senior citizen. In case you didn't know it, God doesn't have a retirement plan. His only retirement plan is taking you home. And until he does that, there is still work to be done. Daniel impacted a whole nation for God because he was consistent in performance even when he was 81 years old. Second area we learn about Daniel's consistency is that he was consistent in purity, verses 4 to 9. Notice verse 4. Then the commissioners and satraps began trying to find a ground of accusation against Daniel in regard to government affairs, but they could find no ground of accusation or evidence of corruption inasmuch as he was faithful and no negligence or corruption was to be found in him. These other leaders are after Daniel's neck. Now, why are they doing this? Well, I think we can point to several reasons. Number one would be jealousy. 
Daniel's about to get the position that they all covet, and so they're jealous of him. I think a second reason would be racial pride, and that's given to us down in verse 13 when they speak to the king and say, Daniel, who is one of the exiles from Judah, pays no attention to you. What's that tell us? They recognized that he was a Jew. They were all Medes and Persians, and they were offended by the fact that he, a Jew, was rising above them. And then I think a third area would be greed. Obviously, the concern of the king at the end of verse 2, that he not suffer loss, was a reality. And these fellows were probably pilfering money out of the taxes. They were probably getting kickbacks. They were probably driving Rolls-Royce chariots and having Riviera vacations at, at the cost of the taxpayers. And they know that if Daniel gets to the top, all of that is going to change. And so in a smoke-filled back room of the palace, these governors get together and they say, the king is about to appoint this Daniel fellow as the prime minister, and we've got to stop it. And so they set out to get some dirt on him. And I imagine they bugged his phone. They probably went over every memo he had ever written. They probably had the Medo-Persian FBI following every lead. And they come back together, and they've got nothing. They say, this guy has never cheated on his income tax. He's not a womanizer. He's got no vested interest in Persian savings and loans. We can't find anything on him. And that's pretty impressive. The highest officials in the government peeked into every corner of his life. They examined his 81 years of public life with a fine-tooth comb, and they can't make one accusation against Daniel because Daniel was consistent in purity. Charles Haddon Spurgeon was one of the great preachers of history. And one time a group of men tried to blackmail him and they came into his office and said if he didn't do what they wanted, they would publish things that would ruin his reputation. And Charles Haddon Spurgeon looked at them and he said, you can write all you know about me across the heavens. That's what Daniel could say because there was nothing to write. You say, well, it was probably easy for Daniel to be pure because he didn't face the temptations that we face today. I like what Alexander McLaren wrote. He said, it's remarkable that a character of such beauty and consecration as Daniel's should be rooted and grow out of the court where Daniel was, for this court was half shambles and half pigsty. It was filled with luxury and sensuality and lust and self-seeking and idolatry and ruthless cruelty, and in the middle of this there grew up that fair flower of character, pure and stainless. Daniel had the same temptations we do, and yet he was consistent in purity. And even his enemies attested to that. And when they had searched and searched to find some dirt on Daniel, and they were just about to the degree of frustration, they came up with an idea. Verse 5. Then these men said, We shall not find any ground of accusation against this Daniel unless we find it against him with regard to the law of his God. We'll have to trap him on the basis of his commitment to God. We'll have to create a conflict between Darius's law 
and the law of Daniel's God. And I'm sure when they came up with this idea, they were probably applauding and giving each other high fives. This was a great idea. But you know, this idea tells us something about Daniel. It tells us that they knew about his faith in God. Daniel's faith was not a private thing. He wasn't a secret worshiper. He hadn't hidden his faith in order to gain political advantage. He was real open about it, and everybody knew about his faith in God. But secondly, it also tells us that they knew that he had a great degree of commitment to God because their whole trap depended upon the fact that Daniel was willing to die rather than compromise. Let me ask you this morning, would your enemies be that confident in your commitment to God? Look at verse 6. Then these commissioners and satraps came by agreement to the king and spoke to him as follows. King Darius, live forever. All the commissioners of the kingdom, the prefects and the satraps, the high officials and the governors have consulted together that the king should establish a statute and enforce an injunction that anyone who makes a petition to any god or man besides you, O king, for 30 days shall be cast into the lion's den. These governors troop into the presence of the king with two strategies. Number one, lying. They say in verse 7, all the commissioners have consulted together. Well, that's a lie because Daniel's one of the three commissioners and he wasn't there and doesn't know anything about it. So their first strategy is lying. Their second strategy is flattery. Nobody can bow down to any god or anyone but you, king, for 30 days. And that's pretty flattering. My daughter was named student of the month in her second grade class for December and we were pretty excited about that these guys come in and say your highness we've been talking and we decided to make you god of the month nobody's going to worship anybody else for a whole month except you and we know everybody's going to comply but just in case they don't we'll make the penalty the lion's den and just to make it official, verse 8, they say, Now, O king, establish the injunction and sign the document so that it may not be changed according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which may not be revoked. Under the previous government, the king had all the power. In fact, if you slide back to chapter 5 and verse 19, speaking about Nebuchadnezzar, it said, Whomever he wished, he killed. Whomever he, spared, he wished, he spared a lot. He did whatever he wanted to. But now they've got a new government, the Medo-Persian government, and it's not based solely on the power of the king. It's based on the power of the law. And so when a law was established, it couldn't be changed. And so they say to the king, sign it into law. Verse 9, therefore King Darius signed the, the document that is the injunction. Darius thought it sounded pretty good, and so he signed it. Proverbs 27.4 says, wrath is fierce, and anger is a flood, but who can stand before jealousy? Anger is, is heated, but it's usually not very tactful. Jealousy is shrewd. And these men, motivated by jealousy, bowl over the king and use him to set a trap for Daniel. What I don't want you to miss is that the reason they had to set the trap is because of Daniel's consistency in purity. 
third area. He was consistent in prayer. That's verses 10 to 15. Notice verse 10. Now, when Daniel knew that the document was signed, he entered his house. Now, in his roof chamber, he had windows open toward Jerusalem, and he continued kneeling on his knees three times a day, praying and giving thanks before his God as he had been doing previously. Daniel was not politically correct. When he heard about the decree, he went home and did exactly what he had been accustomed to doing. He got down on his knees and prayed. And four things mark Daniel's prayer life. Number one, humility. It says he kneeled on his knees. Now, the Bible doesn't prescribe any necessary position for prayer. There are a variety of positions you can pray in, but kneeling is definitely a position that expresses humility. And Daniel, in his prayer life, kneeled on his knees. First mark was humility. Second mark was faith. It says he went up into his upper room. Apparently, it, it, it was full of windows. And he opened the window toward the west, toward Jerusalem, and he prayed for Jerusalem. You say, well, what's that all about? Well, 400 years earlier, when Solomon had dedicated the temple, you can read about it in 1 Kings chapter 8, around verses 48 and 49. Solomon said, if this people is ever taken captive to a foreign land, if you will humble your hearts before God and pray toward this land and toward this city and toward this temple, God will hear your prayer and respond. And so Daniel is taking that literally. He's in a foreign land. He opens the window and prays toward Jerusalem. Now what makes that an expression of faith is the fact that there was no temple at this time. It had been burned down. In fact, there was no city at this time. It had been destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar. So this was a prayer of faith. As he prayed toward Jerusalem, he was saying, God, I'm trusting you that you're going to reestablish the temple in Jerusalem and you're going to bring your people back. You know what's interesting? God answered that prayer in the same year that Daniel is presently praying. If you read Ezra chapter 1 and verse 1, it says, In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, God laid it on his heart to rebuild the temple in Jerusalem. So as Daniel is praying in faith that it will be restored, God is actually answering that prayer at the very time he's praying. His prayer was marked by faith. Third thing it was marked by is thanksgiving. It says he was praying and giving thanks. And I think there's something we can learn there. Because most of us are heavily balanced in the area of requests and pretty light on thanksgiving in our prayer life. I heard a story about a fellow, an older man, who came into the post office and he saw a younger fellow sitting at the counter writing and he came up to him with a postcard and asked him if he would address the postcard. The younger fellow said, sure, and so he writes the address on the postcard and then the man asked him if he would go ahead and write a message on the other side of the postcard. So he wrote a message and he actually signed it for the man. And then he handed it back to him and said, uh, is there anything else I can do for you? And the older fellow looked at it for a moment, and he, he said, Yeah, uh, at the end, could you just put a P.S., please excuse the sloppy handwriting. <laughs> you know, sometimes we're that way with God. God does everything for us, and rather than saying thank you, we find something to complain about. 
Well, I think if Daniel, who spent 70 years in captivity, could find things to be thankful about, you and I can as well. Fourth thing that characterized his prayer life is regularity. It says he continued praying. It says he did so three times a day. And it says at the end of the verse, he did so as he had been doing previously. This was a regular part of Daniel's life. And I think that's especially impressive because Daniel was a busy man. He was about to be promoted to prime minister of Medo-Persia. And he had a full-time job just keeping ahead of these other leaders. He was a busy man, and yet we're told that he took time to pray three times a day because that was a priority. There's a slogan that I've seen on some walls that says, if you're really having a busy day, skip your devotions. Signed, Satan. Well, Daniel didn't just have the excuse of being busy. Daniel had the excuse of the lion's den. And yet it says when he heard about the decree, he did what? Did he stop praying for a month? Did he reduce it to once a day? Did he close the windows? Did he stand so no one could tell he was praying? Did he do it in the dark? No. He kept doing the same things he had done before. He was consistent in prayer. Verse 11. Then these men came by agreement and found Daniel making petition and supplication before his God. We're not told whether they burst into the house or whether they simply saw him through the window, but when they saw Daniel, they had their evidence and they headed straight for the king. Verse 12. Then they approached and spoke before the king about the king's injunction. Did you not sign an injunction that any man who makes a petition to any god or man besides you, O king, for 30 days is to be cast in the lion's den? The king answered and said, The statement is true according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which may not be revoked. Then they answered and spoke before the king, Daniel, who is one of the exiles from Judah, pays no attention to you, O king, or to the injunction which you have signed, but keeps making his petition three times a day. Did you sign the law, O king? Yes, I signed it. Well, Daniel broke it. They're tattletales. And what I like is the end of verse 13, they came and said he's doing it three times a day. Now, I guarantee you they only waited till he did it once and they headed straight for the king. But see, even his enemies knew that Daniel was consistent in prayer, so when they get to the king, they go ahead and say he's doing it three times a day because they know he is, because that's been his commitment all along and they know he's not going to change that. So they come to the king and they say in verse 13, Daniel pays no attention to you, O king. And I'm sure they're hoping that the king is going to be angry at Daniel, but that's not what they get. Look at verse 14. Then as soon as the king heard this statement, he was deeply distressed. Why? Because Daniel, whom he respected, was being victimized and because he realized that he had been naive enough to fall into their trap. And apparently... The execution time was sundown because the rest of verse 14 says, and he set his mind on delivering Daniel and even until sunset, he kept exerting himself to rescue him. The king spent the whole afternoon trying to rescue Daniel. And I'm sure he met with lawyers trying to find some loophole in the law to get around this thing. And maybe he even came up with some other ideas like, Let, let's overfeed the lions. Or 
maybe we can, we can wrap Daniel in some protective armor when we throw him in. But finally, verse 15 says, Then these men came by agreement to the king and said to the king, Recognize, O king, that it is a law of the Medes and the Persians that no injunction or statute which the king establishes may be changed. Face it, king, you can't change the law. And at that point, he faced it, realizing that the only thing that could save Daniel was a miracle. Which brings us to the fourth area of consistency. Daniel was consistent in persecution, verses 16 to 18. Notice verse 16. Then the king gave orders, and Daniel was brought in and cast into the lion's den. Now, the word den literally means pit. It was obviously below the ground because later in verse 23, we're told that Daniel was taken up out of it. Now, we're not told why they had lions. Maybe it was for the reason of capital punishment. That was something that the Romans did. However, the Romans, as you remember, used it as a spectator sport. This was not a spectator sport because they threw him in after sunset, so no one was really watching what went on. But what I want you to notice at the beginning of verse 16 is what it doesn't say. It doesn't say that Daniel fought and scratched all the way. It doesn't say that Daniel shouted, I'm innocent, I didn't do anything wrong. Or, I promise I won't pray ever again. It doesn't say that. Because Daniel went compliantly. He was consistent in persecution. He was the same at the top of the kingdom as he was at the bottom of the lion's den. He was the same in promotion as he was in demotion. And the sight of the lions and the roar of the lions didn't sway his conviction. John Bunyan, the author of Pilgrim's Progress, was in prison under Charles II. He was incarcerated for 12 years, but at any point in that 12 years, he could have been paroled if he had signed a paper saying he would never preach in public again. At that point in time, he had a dependent wife and little children. One of his children was a daughter by the name of Mary, and she was blind. John Bunyan often thought of his poor little Mary and his heart would break. On one occasion he was heard to say, What sorrow you are likely to have in this world, my poor blind one. O Mary, you may go naked and hungry and beg in the streets, be beaten and starved, and I cannot do anything for you. John Bunyan stayed in prison and gave all his concerns, including little Mary, to the Lord. And near the end of his imprisonment he wrote these words, if it shall please God Almighty to let frail life last that long, the moss shall grow on my eyebrows before I surrender my principles or violate my conscience. He, like Daniel, was consistent in persecution. You know, sometimes when you're persecuted, you get encouragement from some unexpected sources. Look at the end of verse 16. The king spoke and said to Daniel, Your God, whom you constantly serve, will himself deliver you. That's a great statement. I don't know if the king knew about Daniel's God and the stories about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, or whether he simply saw the commitment of Daniel, and he was so impressed with, with, with his calmness 
and his commitment that he really said verbally what he saw in the essence of Daniel, but he said, your God will deliver you. Verse 17, And a stone was brought and laid over the mouth of the den, and the king sealed it with his own signet ring and with the signet ring of his nobles, so that nothing might be changed in regard to Daniel. A stone was placed over the mouth of the lion's den. They sealed it with the king's ring, also the nobles. Uh, that was a way to guarantee that it wouldn't be open. Verse 18, Then the king went off to his palace and spent the night fasting, and no entertainment was brought before him, and his sleep fled from him. Typically, the king in the evening had a big feast. Uh, he didn't have cable TV, so they brought in entertainment for the evening. On this night, he said, I don't want any food. I don't want any entertainment. And he laid down on his bed, and he couldn't find any sleep, which tells us that in the less than a year that he had known Daniel, Daniel had made quite an impact on King Darius. He couldn't sleep knowing that he was in the lion's den. You know, you have to wonder what Daniel was doing uh, because I kind of think that Daniel got a better night's sleep than the king. Uh, in fact, my imagination says he probably curled up with a little lion cub. fifth area of consistency in Daniel is that he was consistent in protection, verses 19 to 24. Verse 19 says, Then the king arose with the dawn at the break of day and went in haste to the lion's den. The, the law apparently required that the stone remain in place until dawn. And so at dawn, the king arises. He races as fast as his 62-year-old legs will go to the lion's den. He doesn't stop at Hardy's for breakfast. He goes right there because he wants to find out. Verse 20, And when he had come near the den to Daniel, he cried out with a troubled voice. The king spoke and said to Daniel, Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God, whom you constantly serve, been able to deliver you from the lions? Now, Darius sounds a lot like us, doesn't he? In verse 16, he says, God will deliver you. And now, in a troubled voice, he's saying, Did he do it? He gets the lion's den. The sun's just coming up. It's dark down there. He can't see anything. And so he says down to Daniel, Was your God able to deliver you? Verse 21. Then Daniel spoke to the king, O king, live forever. Now, that's pretty formal for a lion's den. I think I'd be saying, Get me out of here. But Daniel's not even finished. Look at verse 22. He says, My God sent his angel and shut the lion's mouths, and they have not harmed me inasmuch as I was found innocent before him, and also toward you, O king, I have committed no crime. He stands there on the floor of the lion's den and gives his testimony. Let me tell you what God did. God sent his angel, angels and the lions got locked jaw. And God delivered me. Spurgeon once said that the lions wouldn't have enjoyed eating Daniel anyway because he was 50% grit and 50% backbone. Verse 23, Then the king was very pleased and gave orders for Daniel to be taken up out of the den. So Daniel was taken up out of the den, and no injury whatever was found on him because he had trusted in his God. That's pretty beautiful. Here's an 81-year-old man was thrown down in the lion's den. He comes out, he doesn't even have a bruise on him because God protected him. Verse 24, The king then gave orders, and they brought those men who had maliciously accused Daniel, and they cast them, their children, and their wives into the lion's den, and they had not reached the bottom of the den before the lions overpowered them and crushed all their bones. After witnessing what happened to Daniel, apparently King Darius mustered up some boldness 
because he takes these, these instigators along with their wives and children and has them thrown into a lion's den. Now, apparently, I don't see how that fit into his law, but he was taking matters into his own hand at this point in time. And if you think maybe that these lions weren't very ferocious, maybe they were old and didn't have any teeth, it says before they even hit the floor, they were devoured by the lions. Which brings us to the sixth area we learn about Daniel in terms of consistency, and that is he was consistent in praise, verses 25 to 27. Then Darius the king wrote to all the peoples, nations, and men of every language who were living in all the land, may your peace abound. I make a decree that in all the dominion of my kingdom, men are to fear and tremble before the God of Daniel. He replaces the decree to worship the king with a decree to worship the God of Daniel. And this chapter starts out with a new kingdom. It ends up with a new religion. You know, when you think about it, Daniel could have just as easily come out being the hero in this incident. I mean, he could have come out of the lion's den flexing his muscles or or doing a little touchdown dance of some kind and, and bring the attention on himself. But see, that's not Daniel. Daniel was consistent in praise. And so the chapter ends with its focus on the real hero, God. And we hear Darius saying these words at the end of verse 26, For he is the living God and enduring forever, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed, and his dominion will be forever. He delivers and rescues and performs signs and wonders in heaven and on earth, who has also delivered Daniel from the power of the lions. He really says three things about God. He says he's living, he's eternal, and he's not just doing things up in heaven. He's performing signs and wonders on earth. And then the passage closes with verse 28. It says, So this Daniel enjoyed success in the reign of Darius and in the reign of Cyrus the Persian. Daniel enjoyed success. Not because he conformed to the world, but because he refused it. And let me remind you this morning that God has called us as Christians to be out of step with the world around us. I mean, think about it. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were standing when all the rest of the world was kneeling. Daniel was kneeling when all the rest of the world was standing. That's always God's call in our life. He calls us to go against the flow. And because he calls us to do that, it's inevitable that we will face the lion's den. We may face it physically. We will certainly face it spiritually because the Bible says in 1 Peter 5, 8, your adversary, the devil, prowls around like what? Like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Sooner or later, it's inevitable that every single Christian will face the lion. Don't you want your biography to end like verse 28? Daniel enjoyed success. You want to be successful? Then like Daniel, be consistent in performance, consistent in purity, consistent in prayer, consistent in persecution, consistent in protection, and consistent in praise.